listening to Descent Magazine's Belaboured Podcast, hosted by Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Belaboured Episode 199. As we record this, protests have happened all across America in all 50 states and in several other countries around the world against white supremacist violence and police brutality. In response, police, and in some cases the National Guard, and in the case of Washington, D.C., the actual military, have been exercising even more excessive force in attempt to, quote, secure the cities, and now, of course, even the suburbs, where the protests are taking place. Our episode this week, I think, is actually deeply related to this issue, even if it seems on the surface not to be. We recorded an interview with historian Cal Winslow on his new and excellent book, Radical Seattle, The General Strike of 1919. Even before these uprisings, many people were talking about the potential of the pandemic to perhaps bring about a general strike in America. And so we seized this opportunity to interview Winslow live for Red May in Seattle. The pandemic meant we had to do it virtually live via the internet, but we still enjoyed our long conversation with Winslow, of which we are bringing you an edited part today. You can watch the whole thing on YouTube if you would like. We will put a link, of course, to that on the Descent website. But in this episode, we talk about the organizing of the working class in Seattle, including the tensions over organizing Black and Japanese workers alongside white ones in the 19-teens, and perhaps most importantly, what it means when, for a little while, the working class runs the city. Because that's what happens during a general strike, and that's certainly what happened in Seattle in 1919. And it is a thing that is happening now, as friends of the show in Minneapolis and elsewhere are not just holding the line against the police, but also organizing mutual aid to make sure that people are fed and kept safe. The radicals in Seattle also faced intense police violence and militarized crackdowns, and that too is an important part of labor's history. As the protests continue, labor will continue to be asked which side it is on, and ask itself tough questions about things like the graffiti and broken windows at the AFL-CIO building in Washington, D.C., and why, as the Amalgamated Transit Union Local 689 in D.C. said in a statement, Why did young black and brown workers, frustrated with constant injustice, not view the AFL-CIO as their natural ally with over a century of experience in the struggle for equality? Why did they not recognize that act as burning their own house? End quote. This is not going to be an easy process, but ATU 689 also admonished labor, quote, let us never forget that the conditions that built many of our unions, including civil unrest, widespread unemployment, mass demonstrations, are not too different from today. Our unions weren't given to us, but were the result of incredible sacrifices, end quote. We will have more on the ongoing protests and the labor connections at the Descent website, descentmagazine.org. But in the spirit of remembering that history, we bring you Cal Winslow on the Seattle General Strike. Hello again. And we are now talking to Cal Winslow our esteemed guest this evening. Um, He is a labor activist and educator, director of the Mendocino Institute, and a retired fellow in environmental history at UC Berkeley. And among his books, aside from the one we were talking about tonight, (laughs) is Labor Civil War in California and Rebel Rank and File. And he edited E.P. Thompson in the Making of the New Left. 
And so we are here to talk about his new book, uh, Radical Seattle, obviously that's why it's our theme, um, on the general strike of 1919. So Cal, to start off with, because there's been a lot of buzz about general strikes lately, but not a lot of agreement on what they are and what that means. What is a general strike? Yeah, but I just first, I think if I, if I, if you didn't hear me, I just wanted to thank you for yeah. having me on. And uh, it's a really a great pleasure to be with you, even though we have to do it this way. And about the Seattle general strike, I, I want to say just first of all, that it's a really wonderful story, which everybody ought to want to know about. And I can only say, I hope I've done some justice uh, to it. Now, there are many different kinds of things called general strikes. We don't need to worry about that too much. Uh, this, you know, the general strike may, might be when all the workers in an industry go on strike or when all the workers in a geographical area go on strike. In May 68, it was close to uh, a general strike in France. So lots of things are called uh, workers' uh, general strikes. I think that the Seattle general strike is unique, and I'm, I was interested in that always because it was a, a case where all the workers went on strike at the same time and uh, really took control over most of the uh, functions of the city of Seattle, which in 1919 was not a huge city by today's standards, but was 300,000 strong, a modern industrial city at the time in the Pacific Northwest. So your book does this wonderful job of describing the class composition of Seattle leading up to the strike. So I wondered if you could set the stage for us a little bit and talk about the array of unions and labor allied organizations that you write about. And we're going to get into more of them in more detail in a little bit, but sort of give us the, the breadth of who was involved at the beginning. Well, one of, one of the questions, uh, one of the issues in, uh, and one of the big questions about the strike is why did it happen in Seattle and only in Seattle? And why did uh, left-wing uh, ideas tenaciously uh, hold on in the Pacific Northwest? And so I think to talk about the class forces, we might say, we need to look at not just Seattle, but especially uh, Seattle's hinterland, we might call it, uh, uh, we also need to understand that this strike took place in a in an era of labor upheaval and international revolution. So uh, one of the problems with some uh, accounts is that they just want to go right into February and say, well, who was on first and so on. So that's uh, that's one thing that I, I I think the loggers, for instance, uh, who who are uh, important players in all of this. The loggers didn't live in Seattle, right? They, they didn't live there. The workers of Everett, Washington, a mill town 30, 30 miles to the north of Seattle, they were important players, but they didn't live in Seattle. The, the people in Spokane, Washington, who uh, were uh, involved in and won I think it was just about the first great free speech fight of the industrial workers of the world. They played an important part in this story, 
And of course, they don't live in Seattle. So, so that's part of it. I think we, we can't separate our story from all of those uh, people, all of those workers and their stories and uh, their struggles. So, so that would be one thing I would say. When we get to Seattle itself, we find that Seattle is not like a Wild West town. It's, uh, 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 as I said, it's a modern industrial city. It's quite isolated. It's a long train ride from Chicago to Seattle over two mountain ranges. It's an even longer shipyard, steamboat, ship ride, steamboat ride down to San Francisco. So it's isolated. But on the other hand, uh, it's now closer to uh, Asia, to Vladivostok, than San Francisco is by two full days. So uh, its harbor is very important, and uh, its harbor actually surpasses its its uh, competitor to the south, San Francisco, and it's the gateway to Alaska, which is quite important. Uh, partially because of the gold rush, which is kind of playing itself out by 1919, but also the the fishing industry, which is enormously important. And then there's the vast uh, agricultural area inland, the the great inland plateau, the Palouse of eastern Washington and Oregon, the wheat fields and so on. So Seattle is... uh, is shaped by all of that. Its port is particularly important. Its port was a municipally owned port and they made it into one of the most modern ports in the world, literally in the world, uh, which was a great advantage uh, to them. And so the port and the waterfront was always important. So when we get closer to your question, the labor movement itself was made up, uh, the organized, now we're saying, okay, the organized uh, labor movement in Seattle, and I've already mentioned the industrial workers of the world. We have about 110 or so AFL craft unions. So every craft uh, has its own organization, its own headquarters, its own officers, its own constitution, right? Its Its own lines of demarcation and so forth. Now, amongst those, uh, just in terms of numbers, of course, uh, and especially as the war uh, drew on, the shipyards become the major employer in the city of Seattle. So that by the end of the year, when the shipyards had been producing more ships, steel-hulled ships, than any other single port in the country, by that time, there were 35,000, so that's a lot of people, 35,000 in that size of a city, 35,000 shipyard workers. And they belong to uh, a dozen or so metal trades um, unions, uh, but they had formed a uh, metal trades council to represent all of these different unions because in Seattle, the idea was, which was widespread around the world at the time, but it wasn't the main idea of the American Federation of Labor, but the idea was that we should have industrial unions, that industrial unions were superior to craft unions. I should say 
there were 15,000 more shipyard workers in Tacoma, just to the south, and another several thousand in Aberdeen out on the coast. So shipyard building was was really quite important. And um, I think, though, uh, I would say that uh, from the start and thinking about this, um, we we don't need the shipyard workers. Shipyard workers weren't always particularly radical around the world, but metal workers became more radical in these years, every place. Um, but there were many unions, small unions, small craft unions, the unions you wouldn't think of, painters and waitresses and stuff, which were just as radical as the IWW. The IWW didn't have a, a monopoly on radical ideas, which I think is something people don't really understand. So the so so yes, the shipyard workers are the ones with the numbers, uh, and they're quite radical. Uh, and altogether, they're they're represented by the Central Labor Council, who which is led by people who believe in central a centralized strong labor movement. They want. Uh, contracts to expire simultaneously. They want solidarity. They're supporters of the idea of the closed shop. They're believers, uh, some said 95% in industrial unions. So we have that really at the, at the center of it all. That's part of what makes Seattle unique because all of that is anathema to the National American Federation of Labor where the leadership does not agree with, uh, with sympathy strikes, doesn't agree with any of this, you know. Yeah, I found that really, really interesting in this book, the way that you describe how the, the AFL unions in Seattle were very different from the national AFL unions and maybe something more like proto-CIO kind of unions. I um, wonder if you could talk a little bit more about that and what maybe we could learn from that today as we also have sort of national unions that can be kind of calcified and, and uh, not interested in radical action? Well, I think um, the Seattle workers, and this is worth some discussion, the Seattle workers took the idea of solidarity seriously. So if you have the AFL and the IWW, should they cooperate or they, should they compete? If you believe in working class solidarity, should they be fighting with each other? Should all the crafts be fighting with each other over, over the jurisdictional lines? Do you see what I'm trying to say? Or should they be cooperating with each other? Should they maybe be even trying to break down all those divisions, all those structural divisions that exist? within the organized uh, working class. The second thing is that they, these people in um, uh, Seattle, they believed that uh, in, in the closed shop and that everybody, every worker in the city should be a member of a union. Now that was an interesting idea of, well, as well, if you follow it really through because if you believe that, what about Japanese workers? What about black workers? What about women workers? Now, it may come to, as a surprise to many people, but things were not so bad on those issues in the city of Seattle. And in the course of that decade, I think it's fair to say, and the, the newer scholars are, 
are saying this, that things were, were getting better. Far be it from me to say that they were perfect, but that things were getting better. They certainly weren't perfect, but they weren't like they were in most of the Eastern cities, for example. Yeah, so we want to return to that question because it's a really interesting one, but I do want to spend a little time on the IWW because, as you said, most of their workers were not in the city of Seattle, but they clearly had an influence on the Seattle unions writ large. And yeah, so I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about sort of the vision of industrial unionism that they had and how that um, had an effect on the Seattle unions and the strike. Well, see, industrial unionism was a current in international in these days. Uh, the IWW, over the period of time that we're looking at, it shifts its leadership several times. It changes its definitions sometimes. But I'd say, in general, that they believed uh, that uh, that in, in as much solidarity as possible. Their idea of of uh, organizing was much along the lines of what I just said about the um, the Central Labor Council. For instance, so they organized a marine workers union. They organized agricultural workers unions. These were, these were broad categories, but they were based still on divisions in the working, in the workforce. And, but they were brought together under this umbrella of the IWW. They believed that uh, uh, politics and should be centered in the workplace, and um, just to, and that revolutionary politics, and in, in particular socialist politics, should be workplace centered. And there's very moving speeches that they make about, um, well, uh, women can't vote in response to the Socialist Party, right, which was parliamentary. And women can't vote, black people can't vote, young workers can't vote, itinerant workers who move from place to place can't vote. Uh, really, what a restricted electorate there is. And so, uh, William Haywood, one of their leaders, uh, in a wonderful speech at one time, says, this is the way that all of these people can become involved in politics. This is the way youngsters can be involved in shaping the future at their workplace, along with other workers. Uh, now, I'm, I'm probably somewhat uncritical of the IWW. I, uh, I think that there's a lot to be said, although there's a lot of misunderstanding about about them all. But they uh, uh, and they had lots of different points of view uh, within their organization over time, so there wasn't just one line. Um, but that's some of it, I think. I think industrial unionism and uh, politics at the workplace and the strike and solidarity, direct action. Uh, direct action, we might say, what good are contracts and negotiations and so forth if you're not gonna be on the same job six months from now? Does that follow? Uh, you have a problem, let's get it fixed right now because who knows where you're gonna be working six months from now? 
So those were some of their principles, I think. And I think their general principles are what's really important about them, plus this idea of working class solidarity, although they were vicious about the AFL. And, you know, they, uh, they could be a bit sectarian there, but uh, I would pick out those kinds of things. And I think, I think it's important to understand their broad appeal to workers in a language that workers could understand and not to, and they knew this, and not to get uh, involved in nitpicking about just exactly what syndicalism was and were they anarchists or weren't they anarchists? They weren't anarchists. They had an organization, they had leadership, they had everything that anarchists didn't like. So, um, so does that, there we go with that one, I hope. Um, good, well, that segues nicely into my next question, which was um, about direct action. Um, can you talk about the role of the strike uh, in Seattle's labor politics at the time? Were strikes more frequent uh, than they are today? Um, you noted that uh, the IWW or the Wobblies, um, they regularly use the strike as leverage um, to make you know, workplace demands that were uh, quite practical and sort of rooted in kind of bettering the material conditions of, of the workers. So um, that seems to contrast quite sharply with uh, the relative rarity of strikes today. So can you talk about how strikes were used back then? Well, you know, um, this was a, these were years when there was a, what's been called an epidemic, to use that sad term, of strikes. And more strikes in the years leading up to 1919 in the United States than any other period in history in 1919 topping most of the charts for strikes. So it's not just Seattle, but workers believed that they could win things with strikes. And that's uh, what they did in Seattle. They used the strike to organize. They used the strike to improve contracts. They used the strike to support others. Um, the strike was very much uh, part of uh, the culture of working class people. Um, they wanted workers to be organized. They wanted all workers to be organized. And so when one group of workers wanted union recognition, they could count on the support of other workers, including uh, sympathy strikes. And the Central Labor Council would often authorize and direct those kind of sympathy strikes and, and uh, organize Teamsters or other people to recognize workers on strike to support them. And uh, uh, so Seattle was not unusual in that, although it was considered by any account um, strike prone, they called it, if that's uh, mm. uh, And uh, the, if you tried to understand how they could uh, take their membership in 1916 of 15,000 up to 60,000 in 1918, you can see that something, you know, something must be going on here. And a lot of it had to do with this very active, very militant, class conscious labor movement uh, who believed in organizing. I think one of the questions, you know, you talk about uh, today, no strikes today. 
part of it is involved in, it's not always clear uh, to what degree unions are interested in organizing. So um, you touched on this briefly earlier um, uh, about racial tensions in Seattle and some of the uh, racial ethnic divides. And, and in your book, you discuss um, that there was actually a lot of uh, anti-immigrant sentiment um, leading up to uh, the year of the strike, uh, particularly, uh, you know, there was this is the era of Chinese exclusion and, and later on a lot of anti-Japanese um, action. So um, can you talk about how those racial tensions came to shape the labor landscape uh, in Seattle at that time. And um, if things were indeed getting better, and, and you do know that there was uh, quite a bit of uh, Japanese and uh, um, uh, Japanese solidarity with the strikers, um, despite the fact that they were excluded from the union at the time, um, how did that affect sort of how the general strike unfolded? Sure, um, I, I do mention this, and I think it's important because if we think about the time frame. Um, Seattle was founded in the 1850s when uh, it, the, the area was inhabited by indigenous peoples who were treated as badly as they were treated any place by the settlers, maybe not quite as grotesque as down here in California. In, in the 1880s, after the construction of the transcontinental railroads, uh, Chinese workers, and there were some 20,000 or so in the Pacific Northwest, uh, were driven out of Seattle and Tacoma, first Tacoma, then Seattle, uh, leaving only a small number of people behind. Um, Japanese workers came as immigrants uh, after that, and as you said, were excluded uh, from most everything, the way uh, uh, the country was at the time, but whatever for whatever reason, it seems to me that the people who were in the Japanese unions and they were waitress waiters and and barbers, um, they weren't industrial workers, but they were they had their own unions with connections back to Japan, with people who were who were who knew what unions were and how to organize unions. So when things came, kind of came to a head, uh, the Japanese workers could send their elected uh, delegates to meet with Seattle uh, Labor Council delegates and discuss with them the question of being involved in the labor movement and being involved in the general strike. And that was a, a really big breakthrough when the, the labor movement said, yes, of course you can, and invited them in, and there was a lot of emotional stuff about that, but uh, it was real, and the historians of this period say it was real. It wasn't just all um, hot air in the, you know, the, the, the moment, uh, the heady moment of the strike. Uh, so that was quite interesting. interesting. Now, why that happened? Well, I think that it kind of was in fitting with other currents. The IWW was there all the time arguing against racial exclusion so that if they were a minority, they were always there. So we have a number of worker of, of things coming together which undercut the kind of racism that we see around the rest of the country in these years. For black workers, 
there there had always been a very small uh, number of blacks in Seattle, but nothing like other parts of the north, if we call Seattle the north, uh, when it, and, you know, part of the movement to the north and the west. Um, they uh, were said to have some advantages by the Japanese because they couldn't be, uh, they were citizens and they spoke English and, you know, so, but there were, but they were a very small number, 1%. Um, many of them, when the, when the pop, black population went up a, a little bit, many, that was because many of them had been brought in from Kansas uh, and Oklahoma uh, to help break a longshoreman strike in 1916 and then stayed around after the strike had been broken. Now they were a uh, they, they were an important uh, factor in the uh, waterfront unions, in spite of their small numbers. And the IWW succeeded in in getting them into the union, into the ILA in uh, in 1919. So uh, once again, I don't want to be you know painting too rosy a picture. But this is the way this is the way it was, and this is you could read in the in the Union record about uh, stories about how black soldiers were being mistreated when they came back from the war, and how uh, uh, the Southern planters were were treating uh, women workers. You know, front page uh, stories, which was unusual, if not perfect, it was unusual certainly for the time. So you just mentioned this a couple of times in that answer, but I want to ask you to talk a little bit more about the role of these newspapers, because, I mean, obviously, I'm a labor journalist. I find this fascinating. But, yeah, the role of the union record and these these other um, publications was really, really interesting. Yeah, it really is, Sarah. It's it, um, I haven't mentioned yet that Seattle and the Pacific Northwest was a destination for utopians in the 1890s. And they, they, uh, people who, who wanted, who wanted socialism today, not tomorrow. <laughs> so they would come out and get some land in the Puget Sound country. And the first thing they would do is they'd build a, they'd build some houses, they'd build a sort of a community center, and they'd start a newspaper. There were newspapers all around the state. Uh, not just in the major towns, but uh, in little towns, there'd be a socialist newspaper. Um, and there had been, there was a history of, of paper, of news, socialist newspapers in Seattle. The union record had been around since about 1900. Uh, when this man all took over, uh, it was not really that well circulated, but he built it up. In 1918, I guess it was, uh, with support from the Boilermakers Union and with support from a, a newspaper called the Socialist Call, which was going under, they turned it into a daily paper and uh, it worked its way right, its, its circulation right up to 60 some thousand. It was a proper paper that came, competed with, you know, the dailies. It had advertising, it had uh, editorials, it had special pages for women, it had special pages for uh, sports. Uh, but what strikes one, I think, in, in looking through it, 
it, it was a reflection above all of the internationalism of the Seattle working class, which is something we haven't said very much about. But um, no matter what was going on in the United States or in Seattle, on the front page of that paper in 1917, 18, 19, you could follow the events in Russia, you could follow the events in, in Germany, you could follow the events on the Clyde in, in Britain. Uh, you could learn about uh, how uh, Karl Liebknecht and, and Rosa Luxemburg had been murdered. Um, it, it, so it was, it was even though it, it could be described, described kind of as a, a regular paper, in terms of its content, not at all. And it had all sorts of educational uh, functions for the people who read it, education about socialism mostly, but also about trade unionism. So now that we've set the stage, um, can you tell us what ultimately precipitated the general strike? Um, was there a single sort of trigger involved or was it kind of a convergence of different factors? Well, it, it uh, begins with the shipyard workers. They, uh, they had, uh, as I mentioned before, been so productive during the war. And of course that meant long hours, hard work. Uh, they'd been under the control of a federal board so that uh, no strikes were allowed. They had to maintain certain standards set uh, from afar. So while they felt that they had uh, done a good job and made a, made a contribution to the effort, that they had been mistreated. And once the, board, uh, the war was over, all across the country, the issue of, of inflation and the, and the cost of living became an issue. And on the West Coast, the cost of living was higher than it was on the East Coast, and yet the standards were national. So they felt uh, they had been mistreated and, and I think it'd be fair to say they felt bitter, bitter about it. And uh, so uh, the, the war wasn't over, I think for a week or two, and they took a, a vote to have a strike if their demands weren't met. And their demands were pretty basic demands about wages uh, and about hours. And uh, they thought as, uh, they probably would be expected to have thought, they thought that they could settle these kinds of issues. But lo and behold, they couldn't. And one of the interesting things about it was that there was a degree to which the uh, authorities kind of played with them. Who was making the decisions? Was it the shipping boards, you know, in um, Washington, D.C.? Or were, was it the local owners of the shipyards? Who were they negotiating with? Who, who was going to decide? But whatever, uh, as er early on, it became quite clear that um, they weren't getting in anywhere with their negotiations. Uh, so uh, in, in late January, 1919, they went on strike, all of them. And typically, and this is kind of important to think about, they just left their jobs. They didn't have picket lines because there wasn't anybody who was going to take their job. And pickets really about are about keeping other workers out, right? That's what pickets are about. They're not about the companies so much as they are about keeping other 
workers out and 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 the degree of unity in the Seattle was such that there was no there was going to be no recruitment of strike breakers uh, so they uh, at the end of January they went on strike and uh, I think I don't think it was naively but I think it was probably maybe not exactly what they expected but still the authorities would not budge this happened, by the way, to workers around the country, but the, 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 the authorities wouldn't budge on the wage question and on other questions that were important to the shipyard workers. They uh, were concerned about the gap between the lower paid workers and the skilled workers in the shipyards, because that was uh, a place they thought where they were vulnerable. And they were very much concerned that the shipyard owners were going to try to bring back the open shop or the non-union shop. And, and they thought that uh, raising the level of the bottom was the best way for them to ensure that there would be a unified uh, response to any of that. So the end of January, they go on strike. Nothing happens. They don't know who they're bargaining with. Um, so they turn... The, and, and in doing this, they're doing it through this Metal Trades Council, which I mentioned earlier on. The Metal Trades Council goes to the Central Labor Council, and they say, we would like you to come out in support of our strike. They had a labor temple, which was the center of the labor movement, and it had galleries where ordinary workers, rank-and-file workers, could gather. And they met regularly once a week. And these uh, had become sort of tumultuous events as the, the period, uh, as, as the years moved on. And uh, so they came to the Central Labor Council and said, we want your support. And uh, according to um, a young man named Harvey O'Connor, I mentioned him, uh, the idea of a, of a general strike went through the crowd like a gale. Every time a conservative would stand up and said, well, let's be careful here, they would be hooted and yelled at and told to shut, shut up and sit down. Every time uh, so someone would get up and make an emotional speech about workers and the world and the general strike, there would be cheering going through the roof, he said, toward the end of the meeting. People came with stories about uh, riding home from conferences in the Middle West in Chicago, in particular a Moody conference where uh, one, one delegate sat between a, a soldier and a sailor and he stood up and said, they're all with us, crowd goes wild, and uh, unanimously they vote for all these unions, 110 of them, mind you, 110 of them, they vote to to go out on a general strike. Uh, at first, there was uh, lots of discussion about what kind of demands, uh, because of course, in this excited, in this atmosphere of excitement, um, everybody had, well, what do we want? You know, what do I want? I want more money or I want time off. Uh, but the Metal Trades Council, uh, argued that no, this they should stick to one demand and that should be the wage demands of the metal trade workers. Um, and uh, so, so they, they, they did that. And uh, 
the vote was taken and, and for a general strike. To organize the general strike, the Central Labor Council formed uh, or called for two committees, uh, formed them in a sense, but they formed themselves in another sense. First of all, a strike committee. Now this committee was made up of some 300 workers, rank and file workers, three representatives, I think it was from every union, every AFL craft union in the city. And they in turn organized a executive committee uh, of 15 members. Uh, some were, it's difficult to talk about, I was gonna say some were radical and some were not, but we have to remember that there weren't really very many moderates or middle of the roaders the way we think of it today in Seattle at the time. The unions were led by left-wing socialists. Uh, the Socialist Party in Washington State was working class and red in the language of the times. You know, I don't know if people would be aware of this. In the Socialist Party, there were the yellows and the reds. <laughs> And uh, and and they and the Socialist Party wasn't always so working class. So Seattle, they they ran the Central Labor Council. They ran most of the Socialists did not just the party per se. They ran most of the unions. And so, so when we talk about more conservative people, they're not very conservative people. Uh, so uh, the rank and file uh, is is most heavily represented in the strike committee, but they have themselves chosen the executive committee. So uh, do we want to take a break there? Do you want more on that or should I go into? Um, well, we have so did? many, we have so many questions, but the thing I did want to ask you, which fits in pretty well with interjecting here is um, while the workers were on strike, they had shut down so much of the city that they actually had to organize things like getting milk delivered um, and other sort of tasks of social reproduction. So it almost reminded me a little bit of the way we're talking about essential work now during the coronavirus shutdown. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how those decisions were made and what we can learn from them. Right. So you can imagine from what you just said, Sarah, about uh, what kind of issues are immediately going to come up. If you've said you're walking away from all of these uh, essential services, um, so, uh, the, the best known ones were things like, uh, the issue of, uh, milk for moms and, and the children. And, uh, it had been done, you know, by the dairies and some companies before that. And there, there was that, uh, system of distribution, but that was gone now. So they had to organize a very, uh, widespread uh, distribution system to reach all parts of the town so that, you know, not everybody has a car then by a long shot so that people can get to it. And, and they did that. And I say that as an example, the executive committee could say, okay, we need to do this, but they couldn't do it themselves. It had to be done at the base. So there was a tremendous amount of, um, of creativity and involvement at the base in doing things like that. Um, someone's, someone says, well, what about garbage? We, want the, we don't want the city to be filthy. Okay, so we'll give the sanitation workers a pass. 
and they'll have to have a sign up on their truck that says this is approved by the strike committee. And so they stayed working. The hospital workers uh, stayed working so that uh, the sick were attended to, but they had to ask for and get a pass uh, approved by the, by the uh, strike committee. Um, lots of people didn't get approved. So, uh, uh, so there were some services, some, some of the streetcar workers wanted this. So we need to, we're essential. We need to be uh, working. No, sorry, you can't work. Um, so that was kind of the way it, it worked out. Another very notable thing about it was, um, what about keeping the peace? Uh, what, and, and what about the police? And so they organized an unarmed labor patrol, which uh, was out on the streets, keeping bad stuff from happening. And this was quite remarkable because the, 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 ordinary, the regular police had to kind of stand aside. Uh, there was not that much that they could do. And um, uh, that's people noted even on both sides of the of the, the divide that there wasn't very much crime in the city uh, during that week. That uh, crime had actually gone down, um, which was which was you know very very interesting, really. Um, so they they so they they organized that to keep the peace. I liked a lot of the stories that came about um, feeding people because they had to take on the task of feeding those, these feeding people who I suppose couldn't feed themselves because they didn't have a family or or whatever. Um, and so they established feeding uh, stations, as Jimmy Duncan called them, all over the city, but in the union halls and so forth around the city and churches and and uh, um, working people of all of both uh, of all I guess of all genders uh, staffed these things and uh, fed up to thirty thousand people a day. They got either they either paid a very nominal fee or got a free meal. Um, oftentimes, people would have to. Sleep over where they in these stations because they were too far away from their home to walk to and fro. Um, uh, it was said, not I've repeated it. I don't know where I if if I got it someplace, but it's probably the only time in the history of Seattle when nobody nobody went hungry. Uh, no one went without food in the in the city of Seattle for uh, you know any period of time. And uh, if trying to work that out and think about it carefully, there's a tremendous amount of one activity, involvement, creativity in doing something like that and getting the food together, getting it prepared, serving it, getting cleaned up. And, and uh, we could, you know, we could kind of go on about other activities that they were involved in, but it was a, it was a, they, they took, they didn't just close the city down. They, as Anna Louise Strong said, they opened up the city under workers' management to a degree. So going back to this uh, element of internationalism that you referred to before, uh, 
you know, this was happening in the wake of World War One. Um, of course, the Bolshevik Revolution was unfolding. Can you talk about um, how those international uh, sort of, you know, global currents uh, were affecting the socialist movement in Seattle at the time? And, uh, you know, how did both the experience of that first total war, um, as well as this prospect of, um, you know, transnational revolution, how did that shape the political atmosphere at the time? Well, the Seattle working class was against the war, overwhelmingly. The population of the city was against the, the war at the beginning, overwhelmingly. And this wasn't so unusual. The United States, the population in this country was not enthusiastic about this war at the beginning. The Socialist Party, to their credit, unlike uh, parties in um, Europe, maintained an opposition to the war at cost right through to the bitter end. So uh, on, the, on that question, uh, it, it wouldn't be so surprising to find out that Seattle's workers opposed the war. Now, there were uh, big preparedness parades, which the authorities organized to soften up that opposition, uh, to, to bring patriotism onto the streets. Um, that happened every place and it, it took its toll. There were attacks on, on, on anti-war meetings and on anti-war activists uh, by soldiers and sailors and vigilantes. That took a, a toll. But uh, many, several of the most important uh, spokespeople for the, for the unions spent time in prison because of their opposition to cons conscription. Um, so it wasn't something that you just just talked about. It was there was a you know price to be paid. So so opposition to the war was one thing. Uh, another great story from Seattle is uh, this one, and you may remember it if you looked at the book. Uh, the um, the Russian Revolution came uh, sailing into Elliott Bay on a little steamer from Russia. Uh, with its uh, red flags flying in December of 1917, docked at the port and announced that it uh, was led by a Soviet of sailors. And the local radicals went wild. Everybody was down at the docks to meet these people, to find out firsthand what was going on in Russia. Uh, of course, so was the Navy and the police, but they had uh, meetings and great, you know, rallies uh, with these sailors. And it became, you know, quite a, quite a uh, an amazing thing. The, there were stories, were they bringing gold to finance the revolution? Were they bringing guns for the IWW? But they weren't. They had peas and beans. And I don't know why they had that, but they, they brought that from Vladivostok. And uh, but it was really a very interesting event uh, in in this whole story, and it began what I mentioned, what I said was really a romance between Seattle and the Russian Revolution, which lasted beyond 1919, well beyond 1919. So it was very much there, and and it was it was that takes us to the fact that. 
I haven't emphasized this, but of course there was a revolutionary spirit in the times. There were revolutions going on in Europe and there, were up, there was upheaval around the, the world. Um, and, uh, and that was there and there were people who wanted a revolution. Um, I don't think that changes uh, the fact that the strike itself was not a revolution. Um, this is also uh, an era when uh, of intense uh, social reform, uh, you know, even beyond uh, you know, the socialist movement. Um, and it was also an era um, of a lot of reform movements that centered around women, right? Um, this is uh, you know, the battle for women's suffrage and uh, women were heavily involved in the anti-war movement, of course. And there were a lot of sort of moral uh, anti-vice crusades at the time uh, that focused on women. Um, and, and you noted that there are a number of notable radical women who are um, sort of leading uh, you know, the, the political foment at the time. Can you talk about the role of gender and um, whether there is sort of a, a gender divide in how this strike was carried out or experienced? Mm -hmm. Well, once again, we have to be careful. Um, and, uh, but uh, I would say for myself, um, of course there was a, a gender divide and there was patriarchy but I think it's just really too easy. I think it's really lazy to say that's the end of the story, as I think some historians do, um, because it wasn't the end of the story, because it, like other issues, this was contested terrain. And there were arguments going on about the role of women, about women being in unions, about women being officers of, of unions. So there were arguments about all of this. Now, as was the case in much of the West, women won the right to vote quite early on as part of the reform movement that you've mentioned, which included a number of other things. And the, the women's movement in Seattle was mostly uh, identified with the um, middle class municipal league, uh, uh, middle-class women who, who were very interested, not only, they were, they were interested in poverty and child welfare and all sorts of issues, but they were, yes, they were interested in the, the question of vice. Uh, and there was vice in Seattle. Uh, the Skid Row Road was, was notorious for its brothels and its flop houses and so uh, that was that, but there also was a movement of working class women, women who wanted to be part of the union movement, who organized things like the union labor campaign, which, um, you know, once again, is not what everybody's idea of a movement should be, but it was important in supporting women who wanted to organize unions. And um, there was a debate which you could follow in the union record. And uh, a historian, Maureen Greenwald of Pittsburgh, sort of did a lot of the work for us on this. And one of the important debates was uh, about getting jobs. Should uh, married women be able to work outside the home? 
And uh, on the one hand, uh, there were people who said, no, that's unfair uh, to people, to women who need jobs, if, if uh, these married women are, are taking jobs. On the other hand, a more or less more modern, I suppose you'd say, uh, position of, well, women should be able to do what they wanted to do. If they wanted to work, they should work. And that was reflected in the union movement, and it was reflected in the pages of the union record where there was a debate over that issue, for example. And in the end, it was the, uh, the, the issue which some people have called the, um, well, the moral issue about who, who should get to work and who shouldn't, you know, making a judgment on some something like that on who needs the work the, the most on in the um, a moral economy in the um, end that position didn't really win out uh, in the in the war itself of course women went to work in war related and and war direct war industries and worked there one thing which I didn't find out and which uh, I didn't, you know, I, I live here in California and I can't just pop into the library up there into the every every day, but uh, I, I don't know if I discovered them, but I discovered all these pictures of women shipyard workers and of black shipyard workers. And uh, I, I had to ask myself the question, what are they doing working there right, if uh, women are not allowed into these unions because you had to be a union member to work there. So either there was something funny going on or they, the unions were defying their internationals, which said, the internationals, which were the ones which, which, who said, no Asians, no blacks, you can, we cannot have you know, women barbers cannot be uh, in a favel union. And I, su I suspect, and I, I, you know, I can't prove this, but I suspect that the pictures that we see of women um, riveters and black trackmen, uh, I suspect that these people were part of the union and were there in not large numbers, but were there in defiance of the uh, international unions. So it's a mixed message. Nevertheless, many uh, laundresses, waitresses, hotel maids, telephone workers, all of these kinds of groups were organized in, in this period of time and seemed to me to have been part of the uh, labor movement without qualification. So a lot of the working conditions of some of these workers who took part in the strike and who were in the IWW around the strike um, are kind of similar to the ones that we see today in the, you know, the so-called gig economy. So what can we learn from them for to get today's precarious workforce? Um, you talked about the IWW organizing itinerant workers um, is one big union, a concept we should bring back. Hmm. You know, <laughs> I'm not trying to dodge any questions here, but uh, um, all the while that we're talking about these years, there's savage repression going on in the 
in the mills and in the lumber camps and then people being herded into jail, being tortured, being shot. Uh, you know, have to remind listeners of that, of the Everett uh, massacre. Uh, many, many IWW unarmed IWW members shot and killed in what essentially was murder uh, in Everett. Um, and uh, not so much in Seattle, but there was a lot of violence in the um, 1916 strike on the waterfront. So I, I should say that this is not all so nice as I'm, maybe I'm making it sound a little bit too easy and too nice. There's a lot of bitter fighting going on all of these years because these Western employers are not pushovers. And especially in the, um, in the logging industry, but also in the shipbuilding industry. So let's kind of try to remember that. Um, what, uh, what can I say? I don't, I don't myself look into history as something to find a lot of, uh, this was a hundred years ago, to find a lot of lessons. Uh, maybe I'm wrong about that. Uh, what I do think is we find in history is inspiration. Um, and uh, I think this is a totally inspiring story about what working people are capable of doing, about their capacity to struggle, their capacity to organize themselves. So I think working people today still somewhere have that in them. I have no doubt whatsoever. I work with a union called the National Union of Healthcare Workers, and I see healthcare workers who are like this, who are creative, militant, democratic, and uh, and believe in the bigger pictures uh, of things. So I believe myself when it comes to lessons or what I think is the importance. I guess I would take it in that kind of uh, a direction. Obviously, uh, the IWW uh, idea that all workers should be in, in one union, that distinctions had to be broken down, obviously that seems to me to be crucial, um, uh, that we, can't, we have to fight against hierarchies of, of workers, the idea that some workers are more important than others. And I think for me personally, this is something I strongly believe in. Um, uh, there is a tendency in the left to think that, well, some workers, and when I was a youngster, steel workers and truck drivers and coal miners, and, you know, they were the ones that had the power. And so they were at the top of a hierarchy of, of workers, and other people were down the ladder below them. So I disagree with that. We don't know where things are going to come from. I don't believe that uh, the left should see itself in a sense of as, as orchestrating a rank and file rebellion. But I think that we have principles and we have ideas. And so uh, uh, lots of them are uh, no hierarchy, you know, breaking down barriers. Um, you have to be, you have to want to organize people. You don't want to be satisfied with what is. 
you um, you want to you want to uh, to be active. You want union people who are active, uh, who will take action when it's necessary, who aren't just uh, you know dues payers. Uh, I, I think that there's a lot to think about in those kinds of principles uh, of that period of of time. Seeking to uh, establish another historical echo here, um, you you do talk briefly in the book about um, the impact of the influenza pandemic of 1918, uh, right before you know all of this happened. Um, so now that we are in the midst of another pandemic, um, do you see any sort of resonance um, and and perhaps uh, some insights from uh, how Seattle dealt with the pandemic then, and particularly how the left responded to the pandemic? Uh, that might be useful uh, for for us today. Yeah, Michelle, I, I think it's a, there's not much there. <laughs> I think the uh, the uh, pandemic- There wasn't much written about it at the time because uh, there was kind of an well, blackout. <laughs> you, you can, yeah, that's, that's, that's true. And I suppose, I don't know if I was looking for that, but the, um, the, pen, the, the so-called Spanish, flu, which was really the Kansas flu, <laughs> had uh, diminished by the, toward the end of 1918. Um, so I think that uh, it was a factor to the degree, and, and this makes me a little bit nervous, um, as we see people who are not wearing their masks and and you know congregating and so forth, but it was. Uh, it, uh, but I think that there's a the interesting point of view in a radical center, in that um, people felt like they'd been lied to about the war, they'd been lied to about what they were going to get for their sacrifice, then they'd been lied to about uh, uh, how the health authorities were going to look out for them. All the shipyard workers were given a serum, which was worthless. Um, uh, and so they're in a world of death, like we are in a sense of death and sickness. And, you know, the wars took its toll, huge numbers. So I think that to the, to, to the degree that there might be something interesting that it, it could have just been another one of those things which undermined authority, which gave ordinary people no real confidence. How are people selected for the regulatory police? And, uh, was that a volunteer uh, thing or was this uh, You know, we have a, specific, uh, but I like it. Uh, an issue here with, <laughs> dare I, I won't say the words. Um, but we have such a crisis of authority in this country, but it was, it was different then because it could, I think it could well have played into the, the feeling that, well, how can these people dare say they know how to run the world? Which it could do again. Um, so we want to take some audience questions. We've got some in, I'm going to, because it's getting late here, I'm going to combine two questions into a good place to wrap up, which is 
Um, one of them was given your historical research on labor organizing, what kinds of organizing do you see on our horizon? And what do we make of calls for general strikes today? Is this a form we should pursue or is it kind of a myth, a hopeful urge at the edge of possibility? I really like that phrasing. I'm going to steal that. I'm not a, uh, I'm not an authority in this area. So, uh, Oh, come I, on. Who is then? Right. Nobody is is well, that may be, that may be, We've that learned. may be worth saying who is then, but it's certainly I'm not. Um, I'm like, uh, so many people, uh, uh, thrilled by the, uh, red state teachers. Um, I've been to the last several labor notes conferences and found them to be very encouraging and very uh, exciting. I think that uh, labor notes uh, is uh, something to think about in terms of activity, and that is to say, how can people assist working class projects, working class attempts to organize unions? What, what can they do that's positive? Uh, uh, and I think that today's labor movement is not like the one when I was a youngster. You're not going to get beaten up by, you know, going down to the union hall with your crazy ideas. So I think that people can find ways to, uh, to, to do things like that. And uh, if they're in a union, to do the best to make the union, their union, is as good as they possibly can. And if they're not in a union, to try to uh, organize a union. And, um, well, you know, I, uh, I, I, as I said earlier on, I'm a great admirer of the National Union of Healthcare Workers because I see them as a democratic, worker-led organizing union they're growing they fight for what's right they stand up for their the patients rights they uh um everything they do is approved by the if they if when they uh, endorsed bernie sanders for president it was after a complete educational program of discussion and debate and voting so I'm a great admirer of, of theirs. They go on strike. They go on strike all the time, but not well, not general strikes. They haven't had a general strike yet. So that's kind of where I'm coming from. I, I admire them because, because I think part of what they did in Seattle is it was a process of building up a labor movement. Diff, very different conditions, but there, but there was a process of building up the labor movement sort of brick by brick, really kind of from the bottom up doing whatever. And then, and then being there in solidarity when, when strikes break out and helping out and so forth. I don't, I, uh, I've, I come from a period of time when I was most active, uh, when uh, all the, when left wingers thought they had programs for the labor movement and that uh, these might just end up with a general strike. And I, I, I think there's there, I mean, I've studied enough history to know that there's, there've been plenty of spontaneous general strikes in history and I'm all for them, whether or not they general strikes can be uh, pulled out of the hat. I don't know. I, I'm skeptical. 
really about that. And I think that sometimes to be talking about general strikes when they're not anywhere near to being on the cards can be just a, a diversion and a distraction. Um, so when I hear people call, I, you know, when I hear people say we want, we want a general strike, well, sure we want a general strike. Who wouldn't want a general strike? But uh, what does that, that have to do with, uh, you know, so, so instead of calling for a general strike, let's make practical contributions in whatever possible way we can to uh, workers and uh, their movements. You're listening to Belabored, a Descent Magazine podcast. Links to articles mentioned in this episode may be found at descentmagazine.org. And that is all for this episode of Belabored. Thanks to Colin for making us sound good. And thanks again to Philip Wolstetter and all the other great folks at Red May. You can catch all of the Red May panels for this year's virtual conference at their website, redmayseattle.org, or at their YouTube channel, Red May TV. They're currently at about 960 subscribers, and you can subscribe to help them hit their goal of 1,000. And we want to hear from you. If you have any thoughts on the Seattle general strike or thoughts on labor in Seattle today in general, or if you have any historical examples of general strikes aside from Seattle's that you want to point to, if you have some ideas about whether a general strike would be feasible today or why people keep on talking about general strikes despite there never being one, get in touch at belabored at dissentmagazine.org or you can catch us on the Twitters at hashtag belabored. Everyone stay safe, stay home if possible. If you're going out to a protest, Take care of yourself and others. Over and out. You've been listening to Descent Magazine's Belabored Podcast. For the entire archive of past episodes, visit descentmagazine.org. Join us online using hashtag Belabored. <laughs>